stay angry that the government want to take all this from us. Stay angry that Highways England want to plough four lanes of HGB traffic through this. It will just be an environmental disaster. It will be an emotional disaster. It will be a mental health disaster. Any work that will disturb the cap on that site has the potential to release dioxins, asbestos fibres, polychlorinated biphenyls, chemicals that are proven to be carcinogenic or harmful to health. People are still unaware at just how severe and how detrimental the plans are. The amount of pollution that literally just killing people off. All the distress that continual traffic causes all the time, the noise, the particulates. So we've got to find a way to deal with this, but building another road is not the answer. Welcome to our first instalment of our podcast for 2022. It may seem like we've been quiet lately, but behind the scenes the team have been very busy submitting funding bids for events we hope will take place on Rimrose Valley over the summer period. The reason we do this is to attract more and more people to the parkland, so as many people as possible realise what we stand to lose if the road proposal goes ahead. Make sure you follow us online to find out more. As for the latest on the road proposal in our campaign, there is still no news from National Highways on its plans to hold the statutory consultation. This consultation is the point at which it will share the final details on the route and its proposed design. Crucially, it is also the public's next opportunity to give feedback on the plans and we will need your support. We'll be keeping you updated online and we'll also be explaining how to get involved in a later episode of our podcast series, so stay tuned. In this episode, we discuss the wider picture of rail freight distribution in the UK with Maggie Simpson, Director General of Rail Freight Group, which is the representative body for all rail freight in the UK. Hi, I'm Maggie Simpson. I'm the Director General of the Rail Freight Group. We are a trade association representing businesses involved in rail freight in the UK. We have around 110 member companies ranging from train operators, end customers, terminal operators, supply chain and support services. And our aim as an organisation is to increase the volume of goods moved by rail freight in the UK. Hi Maggie, I'm Tim. I was wondering what the state of the rail freight system is in the UK compared to Europe. It kind of feels like we've been left behind and I wondered what your thoughts were. I think compared to, to many of our European colleagues, it's it's a slightly difficult comparison because, of course, we're a less industrialised nation than places like Germany or, or Eastern Europe, where market share on the face of it is a little bit ahead of the UK. Um, but we've moved from a situation where, you know, really only sort of five to ten years ago, we were heavily dependent on the bulk markets of coal and steel and, and coal in particular has obviously, you know, all but stopped now with the change in UK generation mix. That's a great thing for the climate, um, but it's meant that rail freight's had to transform itself to really be much more focused around consumer goods, uh, construction and building materials, uh, supermarket products, and the other things which which more reflect our modern economy. But there are some areas where uh, where certainly I would like to see some more progress in the UK with less electrified railways than most of Western Europe, uh, which means more rail freight has can't run electrically at the moment, although we're trying to do more of that where we can. We've got across mainland Europe through rail links out to the Far East and China, which are, are 
growing every year, which don't come through to the UK. And I think, you know, there are some opportunities for us there as well to start building up those land bridges. Hi, Maggie. It's Sandra here. Do you feel that successive governments have neglected rail freight in favour of HGV transport? I mean, I think actually the government's focus over the long term has, has tended to just be on passenger transport full stop. And when I, you know, to talk to colleagues in, in other freight modes, so shipping, roads, it's tended to be what we collectively call freight blindness, which is that government simply hasn't thought about the movement of freight at all. And, you know, it is almost exclusively a private sector enterprise. So that's perhaps why. Uh, also, you know, I like to think it's because generally speaking, we've got on with it and not really caused too much difficulty for anybody. But I think in the last two, three years, that, that's definitely changed because we've had the shock of Brexit, the shock of COVID, uh, and particularly, you know, COVID has caused global disruption to supply chains. And I think it's caused government to realise that, that the movement of freight is a fundamental part of the economy. And generally in in awareness raising around the role of rail freight, particularly as part of the decarbonisation agenda. And we've seen a lot more focus on that in, in the last 12 months than I've ever seen, in fact. Uh, next one. Can you please uh, talk about some of the advantages of moving freight by rail as opposed to road? So I think you can look at this in, in two parts, really. One part is about the benefit for the customer, so the user of rail freight. And, and for for a customer, and that could be anything from a, a shipping line or a quarry or an automotive manufacturer or a supermarket, all sorts of businesses who use rail freight, they have a, a mode of transport which is really reliable. It outperforms road freight and reliability. It can move significant volumes very quickly and reliably over long distances. It can be cheaper when you're doing long distances and high volumes. But of course, in particular, and this brings me on to the second area of benefits, it helps with sustainability. A rail freight produces significantly less carbon dioxide than the road freight. The laws of physics tell you that we, we have a lot less friction between a steel wheel and steel rail, uh, and that translates into a lot less fuel being required to do the same movement. Uh, we also are beneficial on air quality pollutants in a, in a lot of respects. As it reduces road congestion clearly. So, uh, you know, an average container train would be taking maybe 50 or 60 lorries off the road. A construction or aggregates train would be more than that. Um, so we think we average somewhere around 75 HGB movements per train load. And of course, that has knock-on implications in terms of, of uh, congestion, but also noise and road safety as well, which come from simply having less uh, road movements, less HGVs on the road. Right now, today, rail freight, even with the current traction mix, is making, as I said, 76% less carbon on average than, than using road freight. So, of course, we can't all wait to 2050 to make less carbon. We need to be make, making less carbon today. So mode shift from road to rail today is a really important part of making less carbon today. Brilliant. That's great to hear. We've heard it said that moving freight by rail is only viable over long or long distances. Do you agree with this? So in order for rail freight to be financially viable, it has to be able to compete with, with road freight. 
to do that, it is true that, the, you know, two of the factors that influence that are how well loaded the train is. So are we moving as much goods on every single train as we can? And also how far the, the train goes, because some of our costs are fixed, the cost of the loco, cost of lift, etc. And obviously over longer distances, that becomes more economic. But I, that doesn't mean that it's the only way to make it economic. And there are many examples of shorter distance services that have been running for many years. We've seen services coming from places like T-Sport on the East Coast into Doncaster. There are services within the central belts of Scotland and they're running, you know, very, very short distances in some cases and have been doing for a long time. So shorter distance flows, you have to work that a little bit harder to make them economic. You've got to be making sure you've got the trains full and that you've got the, the rotation of your equipment to make them economic, but it's absolutely possible to do it. Maggie, it's Kate here. What do you think of the east-west connectivity issues regarding rail that have been mentioned recently in the news? East-west connectivity for rail, rail freight across the UK is, is poor. There's no doubt about that. We've still got a rail network you know, that was built by our Victorian forefathers who wanted to get up and down the country between Scotland and London, uh, you know, and we're all sort of victims of that even now. So getting across uh, the Pennines is particularly challenging for freight. So we're working really hard with uh, Network Rail and with DFT to try and make the case for improved freight connectivity across the Pennines. Obviously, there are schemes such as the Trans-Pennine route upgrade, which is sort of underway now, Northern Powerhouse Rail, which is, uh, you know, in the planning stage. And we've been pushing really hard to try and get rail freight factored into those schemes uh, to give that connectivity because, you know, we have uh, ports in particular, both on the east and west coast, who, you know, would start services tomorrow if that capacity was there. Uh, and it's, you know, there are also um, big clusters of quarries in, in the Peak District and, you know, industrial activity still across the region, all of whom would benefit from that increased capacity on that east-west axis that simply isn't there today. So east-west capacity across the country is a real challenge. A question our campaign is often asked is why can't the network of rail lines solve the problem of port access? We've heard from members of the community who point out the number of disused railway lines running from the dock that were active up until the 1980s. So could these be another part of the solution? One of our volunteers, Tim, visits some of the disused railway tracks around the Seaforth area with John Wilson. So, Franklin, can you just can you just tell us exactly where we are? Yeah, we're in Aikenside Street, Bootle, where it runs in to Violet Road at the end of the old what we used to call the old cinder path, and we're where the line splits for the Mersey Rail system that runs the Southport to one of the old branches, the dock links. This is the old link that used to go to Bootle Container Base from Seaforth. It's been reinforced and it's had work done on it fairly recently to, to take the extra waste. As you can see, the support walls all look new and up to date. So if it was to be, this bit stretch was to be used again, it, it wouldn't need a great deal of money thrown at it. It was up and running when they opened the container base at Seaforth. And 
they, they built an inland container base up in Bootle and the containers trains used to run from Seaforth up to there and they'd take the containers off store them and lorries would go in then in there you'd load the lorries to, then they'd deliver the, the containers over the UK but also if they had what people call groupage containers which is a container with three or four different customers goods in they'd strip them down in there and smaller lorries would come and deliver them to factories and warehouses around the UK and that's what used to happen so this was in the 70s and you were all working in I was working as a container driver going in out the docks and I was actually running in out of the container base at the time and I was also going in there what we call haulage lorries flat wagons taking what you call groupage away to smaller um, smaller venues in the 70s they put inland container bases in most big cities Birmingham uh, London Manchester they were, in, they were in most major major industrial cities and that was the idea and they were all linked by the rail so why, why, why do you think they phased out then? see for instance you, you come in the lorry and your Liverpool company and an ACL container box that's coming at sea for or, or another box and you go up there to pick it up so you're getting two labour forces handling the one container aren't you and it did come under the dock labour scheme so I'm not so sure that when he was trying to do away with the dock labour scheme that's why they couldn't have container bases with the first to go all what you call original dockers transferred up, up to there but the, the, the rail is still well it's part of the way isn't it so there is a rail a usable rail system that was that was um, made to take the weight of freight is there up into Oriel Road from the port this is interesting stuff as we heard from John inland container bases clearly aren't a new or even a revolutionary idea not so long ago, trains would routinely bring goods from the docks to Bootle, where they were collected by HGVs and smaller vehicles for their onward journeys. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? In fact, it sounds very like the solutions proposed in Sefton Council's 2020 Arab report, which we covered in one of our previous episodes looking at viable solutions. It makes you wonder why we moved away from this system at all. John suggested that this may have been because it meant double the labour force. But in an era of new technology and automation, would this really be an obstacle today? We posed the question to Maggie Simpson about reopening the lines that John mentions and how feasible this might be. So I think reopening railway lines is is a really complicated narrative. There are some lines around the country that make good sense reopening, particularly around sort of local passenger connectivity and getting people into urban centres, absolutely. The thing with, with freight is it's always, it's always going on a journey. And so if you're looking at, at a reopening, you, you need to know that, that the journey works end to end. So it, there may well be places, not, you know, forgive me, I don't know the Liverpool network as, was, as, as well as all that, but if it helps remove a bottleneck then, then maybe, but, but most often when we look at them, we find that it just moves the problem somewhere else. 
that you then end up rejoining the existing network at a, a less fortuitous point potentially or that you need some other infrastructure somewhere else to enable that end-to-end journey to work and, and that's always the challenge is is making sure that it works end-to-end. Hi Maggie, my name is Annie. Uh, in your opinion regarding rail freight today, is Liverpool sufficiently connected? Thank you. So it's Port of Liverpool have done, you know, a lot of work in terms of getting rail capacity improved and, and there has been some work on the branch line into the port and more, I think, scheduled to happen. I think the, the real concern is, is sort of the onward connectivity uh, across to the places where that those flows of freight would naturally want to go. I think being connected to the West Coast mainline is, is really helpful, actually, because it is probably the most important freight corridor in the country. There's already well-established rail freight on that to and from Liverpool and elsewhere. But that connectivity across the Pennines is poor. Uh, Certainly up to Scotland, there are some challenges. And HS2, though, should open up opportunities heading from Liverpool to the south and into the sort of the, you know, the freight hinterlands in the Midlands as well. So I'd say it's, it's a mixed story. There are definitely opportunities there today. And there are some places where Uh, unlocking the capacity, particularly across the Pennines, will be really important in improving its connectivity. Maggie, we've been hearing about the cuts to HS2 and the Trans-Pennine upgrades. If the improvements aren't actually delivered, where does that leave Liverpool for transporting freight? So as, as I see the schemes in IRP, we, we've got a commitment now to phase 2A of HS2 already, Birmingham to Crewe. Uh, the plan confirms phase 2B from Crewe to Manchester will be built. It is quite complicated to understand the Manchester to Liverpool links, uh, but there is some upgrade of, of a route via Fiddler's Ferry. Uh, which is part existing freight route, some operation on the existing network, and some new line running from the Fiddler's Ferry route towards Manchester. There is new Northern Powerhouse Rail from Manchester heading towards Leeds, but that will rejoin the existing network earlier than some plans would have liked, and it commits to the full upgrade of the Trans-Pennine route, which is already a live project, and importantly for us, it confirms the freight elements of that. The bit of new line heading from Manchester towards Liverpool, I think, will be helpful because it frees up capacity on what we call the Chatmots line. And there are some new terminals there, including Port Salford and Parkside in the development phase. If they come to fruition, that piece of line will be helpful for that capacity. In the, in the face of potential lack of rail solutions and freight solutions not being delivered as was promised we, you know we, we 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 believe it's essential that we explore alternative technologies whenever you handle freight you increase its the costs mm-hmm. so we you know we work quite hard to try and find ways of handling rail freight as few times as possible and that's why places like port salford if it happens are really good because they put the warehousing next to the railhead so you were going to warehouse it somewhere anyway, weren't you? So therefore you've reduced the handling. So I think if you're going to look at solutions that require more, more interventions and more handling, you have to think about how you're going to do that in a way that's cost effective. Because if, if you increase the cost, 
ultimately it ends up in consumer prices. So, so finding the most cost effective way to do it is is the challenge. Brilliant. But I absolutely agree that you know there is a place for new technology, looking at things differently, um, and that's everything from you know I think Tesco are doing a trial with some electric road vehicles down in South Wales now, uh, more use of rail, obviously. Uh, other ways of decarbonising transport, longer trains, you know, measures to improve collaboration so that lorries and trains go out as low, fully loaded as they can. You know, there's a whole host of technology out there that I think has a place to be deployed in the freight network. Well, Maggie, that's been fascinating. Thanks very much for, for your time and for talking to us. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that we and all our listeners sincerely hope that, you know, rail freight gets the investment it, it sincerely needs. Although it's frustrating to hear about the national challenges with wider rail network connectivity, particularly across the Pennines, it's interesting that Maggie mentioned how, since Covid, the government has realised that the movement of freight by rail is fundamental to our economy, and that there has been more focus on this than she has ever seen. If mainland Europe is developing rail links with China in the Far East, doesn't it make sense for us to do the same with freight across the UK? It was also interesting to learn that even shorter rail distances can be economical, as we have often been told that rail is only viable over longer journeys. As ever, things aren't black and white. We also heard some of the main advantages to moving freight via rail rather than road. Rail is more reliable. It moves bigger volumes, can be cheaper and crucially, it addresses sustainability. This is because rail freight produces significantly less CO2 emissions than road. On average, one freight train equates to 60 highly polluting HGVs and generates approximately 76% less carbon than transporting freight by road today. With greater investment in rail, surely these figures can only improve. Rail freight also produces less noise pollution and contributes to road safety by reducing the number of HGVs on the roads. Indeed, the advantages of rail over road seem never-ending. So why isn't it featuring more prominently in discussions around access to and from the Port of Liverpool? The answer to this question is complex, but it's clear that sustained investment in getting freight onto rail is essential if we're to dig ourselves out of the hole that decades of dependency on roads and HGVs has led us into. Sadly, the outlook on this front doesn't look great, in the short term at least. This is because, despite Transport for the North setting out what it believed were the minimum requirements for rail enhancements, Transport Secretary Grant Shapps thinks he knows better. The Department for Transport recently scaled back plans to improve connectivity, which were previously promised to our region. Crucially, these included plans for improving freight capacity in and out of the Port of Liverpool. Our own Metro Mayor Steve Rotherham has publicly condemned this cut in investment. What the government would like us to believe is that they've just unveiled a comprehensive plan to deliver an integrated rail network fit for the 21st century. But instead, they've proposed a solution that could have been promoted by Gladstone in the Victorian era. Northern Powerhouse Rail had the potential to be transformational for our area, for the wider north, but equally as important 
for the UK as a whole. Leaders across the North made an inarguable case for NPR, so much so that the Prime Minister himself and the Chancellor both agreed. Today, they've broken their promise to the people of the North. These plans won't deliver the 16 billion of pre-pandemic economic benefit to our area alone. They won't free up the freight capacity and take heavy pollutant HGVs off the road. They won't tackle the climate emergency or help to connect our region with opportunities across the country. Once again, they've asked us to settle for scraps off the table, a cheap and nasty solution to a problem facing nearly 15 million people across the north. And that's just not on. As you've just heard, our Metro Mayor has identified the need for a massive investment in northern rail infrastructure and also highlighted the disparity of rail investment between the north and the south. What is now being put forward is a cheap and nasty downgraded alternative. We couldn't agree more. We've been fighting a cheap and nasty road proposal of our own for the last four years. In the absence of a government that cares about our region and refuses to invest what's required, it's being left to us, the impacted communities, to fight for a better deal. Fortunately, the people of Liverpool have a proud history of fighting for what's right. This is what gives us the strength and encouragement to keep going, along with the incredible support we receive from people like you. There are lots of ways that you can help to save Rimrose Valley. You can sign our petition, volunteer and be part of our award-winning team. Write to the Secretary of State for Transport, donate to help our cause and follow us on social media. Visit saverimrosevalley.org forward slash get involved, which is get hyphen involved, to find out more. Special thanks to Maggie Simpson and John Wilson, as well as all of our volunteers who asked the questions that featured in this episode. Our music was composed and created by The Reeds. You can follow us on Twitter at Rimrose Valley, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. Keep up to date by subscribing to We Said No wherever you find your podcasts. If you want to find out more information, get involved or support our campaign, please go to rimrosevalleyfriends.org and don't forget to listen out for our next episode which looks at the devastating impact National Highways plans will have on grassroots football in our communities. Mm -hmm.